Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Drukama Radio. I'm your host, Thomas, and today we're going to touch upon a very large topic, the subject of cities, and that is S-I-D-D-H-I, not the New Yorker, Tokyo kind, for those who want to know the spelling. And we are lucky enough to be joined today by Daishi. Daishi, may I ask how you are? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me again. And I look forward to this conversation. It's a pretty big topic, as you said. So I hope we can dive into it and make sense of it. Yeah, let's jump in. So for someone who's never heard that word before, what do we mean by cities? Well, that word is a word that comes from India, actually. And the word just means really mastery or perfection of something. So if you're a siddha or a siddhi, you have some perfection or mastery over it can be anything, but in this case, it's usually the spiritual path. So it means that at some level, you've maintained a mastery over some part of it or a portion of it or all of it. And a siddha is one that has that mastery and has that attainment. So traditionally, the word goes toward that, but it also applies toward the different kinds of perfections or attainments that come along the way that we see as more of a psychic kind of power that comes to the practitioner. And that's where I think people look at that word more commonly in terms of mastery of psychic powers and mental and energetic kinds of phenomenon that go beyond the normal common person. Yeah. In my experience, I've heard it's a certain kind of accomplishment, but it's a power. Could we give some examples of some cities? Sure. There are several examples. Sometimes they're considered minor, these kinds of attainments, these powers that come up for the practitioner, and sometimes they're considered major. The minor well, we have actually, it just comes to mind, we have a practitioner that's in the public view because most of the siddhas are not in the public view. So we hear about these powers or these attainments through rumors and through historical spiritual texts and so forth. But there is one, there are a few actually, but one that's probably most commonly known as Wim Hof, the practitioner who has attained a siddha, and that siddha is to overcome temperature. So one of the siddhas is to be able to withstand heats and cold temperatures that a normal person typically doesn't like to or can't withstand. And through his work, he's mastered what's called an external kind of tumo or an external kind of shakti force that allows him to maintain his body temperature, regardless of what influences are coming in from the outside. So he's broken a number of world records. And he's also been investigated by a number of scientific universities, and they've done some studies. If I have my facts correct, I'm not too well-versed on his background, but I do know of him. And this is just a process of understanding the inner winds and driving heat into a certain area of the body and gaining mastery over that process. And so that would be considered a minor siddha. So the practice of withstanding cold and heat is something that comes to a practitioner as they gain more insights and advancement on the spiritual path. Now, there are a number of other minor and major siddhas like that. Some are the ability to reduce oneself into a very small awareness. In other words, bring your awareness down to a very small atomic level and investigate the inner process of the body or other external matter. Like you could do that toward a cup or toward a pot or toward another human being. So you could actually drive your awareness down in scale so that you could explore them on a level of the cells or the level of the atoms. And that's another kind of minor siddha. So there are various siddhas like this, allow you to go into the earth and explore, go out into the universe and explore the universe and so on. And these come up at various times in the practice of deep and certain types of meditativeness, and they can be accessed and built up, or they can be bypassed as you continue along the path of realization. 
So in other words, if someone wanted to grow and expand and become even more proficient in these particular minor or major siddhas, they would then explore them and utilize the various kinds of energy winds that are responsible for them and make that their day-to-day practice until they were mastered. But typically what happens is as the opportunities of these start to come up, your ability to see the future, read someone's mind or feel their feelings and have empathy toward what's going on within them. These kinds of things happen and come up and the seeds of them start to present themselves. And traditionally, a practitioner moves past that because they're only just trappings and goes on to continue their realization and eventual liberation or moksha. So they would probably bypass these. And in our time, we see that that happens quite a bit because they're much more difficult to attain today than they were millennia ago when they were very popular and we were in a different age. So you're on the path and these accomplishments or these attainments start arising. So when do they begin to arise and is realization necessary for the attainment of these siddhas? To some degree, it's necessary that some of the knots are broken open because you'll need the winds to get into the channels so that they can start to be utilized in different ways. And everything goes back to the elements and how the body energies are functioning, really. We're trying to learn how the vehicle that we reside in, and when I say we, I mean just the conscious awareness, trying to learn the functioning of that. So we're trying to investigate the process. So not only just the process of how the subtle energies are moving, but also how they affect our thoughts and how those thoughts affect emotions and emotional reactions and and also our speech and actions after that. So we're trying to figure out what parts of this vehicle are reacting from chemical and nervous stimuli and what parts do I have some control over and essentially how can I get access to those controls. So as we go into meditativeness and we start to learn how to bring the winds into the central column and how that function happens. And of course, that happens deep into the meditative process. There takes some preamble work that needs to be done in a foundational kind of practice first. But once we understand the winds of the body, we can then begin to gain access to the seeds that can be germinated to create more of these siddhas if we wish. And if you have a good teacher with you or a good spiritual friend, they'll push you not to get caught up in them because you know, in our day and age, we don't live long. We don't have a lot of time to get this path done. So we want to really focus on the main part of that, which is full realization and inevitable liberation. And sometimes these little seeds that pop up can still grab some of our egoicness because we haven't cleaned that out yet. And one of the aggregates will get tied up with it and we'll go seek these things because we think that it will be somehow helpful or even in a worst case will promote us into a better position where we'll be seen better by others, which obviously is anti-path. We want to get away from the form and matter and the gratification, the aversions and attractions that control us in order to be liberated from the system and the cycle of death and rebirth. So those things can be negative in that regard. But after one reaches complete crystallization of realization, where they no longer have a fear of dropping back into the egoic nature of the mental aggregates, then if there's time, they can go back and start to learn these and perfect these and maybe utilize them for something positive. But in most cases, they're really kind of a test. You go through them and you check to whether these things are pulling you back into the egoicness that wants to be seen and appreciated and you know, kind of worshipped by other people. And so you know, without the right advice and help there and the right counsel there, it's easy for you to fall into that kind of self-promotion. And so we've got to be careful with that. Yeah, that was my question later, but maybe we talk about it now. The dangers of cities. So from the perspective of someone currently on the path, why is there hesitation about developing or learning cities? Yeah, again, like if you look at 
the example, and I'm not picking on Wim Hof. I think the guy's amazing and I'm a big fan. I think in terms of just his accomplishment is absolutely incredible. He's done so much for meditation, I think, and so much in promoting meditation. It's just a beautiful thing. And so there's no way you could see anything bad there. He's trying to promote people to get healthy and to be able to overcome disease and illness. And so he's using that sit for a very beautiful thing. But somebody that doesn't have the kind of will and strength that he obviously has in order to do things for the betterment of people's health and all of that, they could use that as a parlor trick, as some type of way to promote themselves in a way that's not conducive with helping others and not conducive with bringing people to the path. If you're not selfless enough, it's very easy to get pulled into the idea that, wow, I'm really going to be honored by people who look at me and worship me rather than me helping them actually attain greater states of clarity and move away from ignorance. So there is that fear. And when these siddhas do come up, there is the possibility of that happening because we haven't completely removed ourselves from the illusory person, the selfing identity yet. And we still feel that there needs to be some promotion of that phantom thing, of that character that we have believed we are up until that point. So if that hasn't been cut off completely and seen for what it is and the wisdom and clarity of that transient self hasn't been witnessed completely, we may utilize some of these siddhas in a way that might be harmful to ourselves and harmful to other people. And that's always the fear. Interesting. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me that at a certain part of the path, the lucidity that we experience in dreams is brought into our waking lives. And we begin to see the dreamlike nature of reality here. From this perspective, if this was a dream, anything and everything's possible. So having control over natural forces or hearing or seeing things far away or the ability to be anywhere at will, these don't seem impossible if we're dreaming. Yeah, absolutely. And we read about this throughout most of the spiritual texts that go way back previous to this era. And that was that, you know, Taoist masters would leap from mountain to mountain and they would manifest themselves into different material forms and so on. And some crazy stories that we hear about masters from all different traditions verifying the same kinds of feats that some of these masters were able to attain these kinds of powers that would allow them to do things that seem to be absolutely outside the structure of creation, the laws of creation, I should say. But it's not that it's some magical feat. It's just that they're learning how to maneuver their energies in such a way that they can work within the laws. They're not breaking the laws. They're actually working within the laws. And they're just becoming smarter in terms of how their physical vehicle operates and the things they can get away with as they learn more and more about themselves. And so, again, I'll point back to TUMO. When a practitioner learns how to utilize TUMO in the external TUMO, or the TUMO that actually keeps the body temperature at a certain level, you can get away with raising your body temperature up at will. You can go from your normal 98 degrees up to 103 or 4 degrees very quickly just by concentrating and focusing energies a certain way. And you can also withstand very cold temperatures. For an example, we were at Joshua Tree and there was a bunch of practitioners there. And the wind was up, it was in the fall, it was cold, it was in the middle of the night. We were hanging out and doing a little bit of a satsang by the fire. And we climbed up on top of the mountain there to meditate a bit. And everybody was covered up with, you know, these big down jackets. And I had on shorts and a t-shirt and everybody was saying, aren't you freezing? And, and I wasn't, it was just the inner heat able to mitigate against the wind chill and against the air that night. And so these are just common kind of minor cities. Once we learn how to operate that digestive fire a little bit, we can just turn it up and oppose the outside force, especially if it's only, you know, 30 degrees or 20 degrees with wind chill. 
it's very easy to be sitting outside in shorts and a t-shirt because you can just turn that digestive fire up by using the downward and upward force and winds to create a spark there and generate that heat to a certain extent. And then you're able to mitigate, like I said. So that's not some kind of magic. People look at these as some kind of woo-woo thing. That's just understanding that there's a way to make the core of the body rise in temperature to offset whatever's happening outside of it. It's really not anything more than that. And once it's learned, you sort of go, oh, well, it's not that big of a deal. In the same way that hearing another person's thoughts, when people think that it's like reading the actual words, it's not. It's, there's a sense there to touch what somebody is focusing on, feeling and sensing what direction their intention is in, what direction their mind stream is going. This is just a tuning in. It's not like the synaptic firing of the brain is capped within the skull and it doesn't radiate outward. Of course it does. It manifests everywhere at all times. So if you tune yourself down to a certain level, you can tap into that vibration and suddenly you're united with the other thinker and you can kind of feel and sense where they're going with their thoughts and emotive responses. And there isn't really anything that big about that either. So people would say that and say, well, that's ridiculous. It's insane and must be woo-woo or magic. No, it's just a matter of tuning yourself again to that particular vibration. This is what the whole point of serious, intense meditative practices do, is they get you tuned into what we call the spiritual domain. And at the end of the day, we're not really interested in communicating through other people's minds or trying to really utilize temperature control for anything more than just convenience. What really matters is that we tune ourselves into something that goes beyond body which is the spiritual stream state. It's a state of spirituality. It's a feeling or sensing intuitiveness that transcends body bliss or body pain. And it allows us to connect to a higher sense and allows us to connect to a more intuitive way of seeing and perceiving the world so that we can understand it better. And that's really where we're headed. And all of these other kinds of faculties are just extras or ancillary stuff. And like any tool can be used right or wrong in terms of how our intention is aimed. So maybe in the same way, like a bodybuilder has trained his body to lift heavy objects, we can train our minds and the energies of the body to accomplish great feats if we have awareness and control over them. The mind is an incredible instrument. We have barely scratched the surface of its use. And so the only difference, again, like you just mentioned, is we don't work out the way that we calm the mind down into certain brainwave states and then become aware of those states and allow ourselves to understand how the energy of the body can be utilized to heighten perceptions and point intentions in certain ways. And there's no roadmap for that unless we look back at the ancient, very ancient scriptures, which tell us in a very coded way how that physical vehicle operates. We need certain eyes to see that. So it's kind of useless to have that information in front of an initiate because they're not really sure what they're looking at. You know, the truth is the meditative path isn't gaining stuff. I think it's more losing stuff. We're getting out of the way of our own nonsense. And there is some training there. There's some learning how to allow that process to be what it already is. But for the most part, it's all of our nonsense that gets in the way of having that revealed to us. So we're reducing the amount of noise. And as we reduce the noise and we settle our intention and will together, we can then aim it at things that have become more readily available to us. And that noise is the egoic selfing intellectual mindness of the day-to-day, <laughs> what I call the viral thought process, which is the instinctual must-have, must-know, me, my mind kind of a thing that happens to every human being and happens more and more as we see technology coming forward and pouring in our laps. But that reinforcement of self is the trouble, and that's the thing we want to lose so that these things become revealed. I'm glad you brought up off because I think it's important to bring this 
especially this subject, down to, to earth and take the mysticism out just for a second. There's a wonderful quote. I've heard you talk about it. Albert Einstein says that I'm not that smart. It's just that I stay with problems longer. And mm -hmm. we think of Einstein as a genius, but perhaps maybe he just developed a type of city, like a, the ability to hold his focus on a single problem for a long period of time. Couldn't be said better. So you're absolutely right. I mean, the ability for him to stay with the problem longer than other people is what allowed him to have breakthroughs. And he was very clear about that. So it wasn't that, you know, he said, I'm not a genius. I mean, he had trouble in school. And we hear stories about him having problems of focusing and all of that. It's kind of silly, right? Because you think he's just a genius by birth and it was just going to be what he was. But he truly encapsulated his methodology in that sentence. He just basically said, I stay with things. So he had the ability to hold on to a problem and stay with it until the actual solution was given to him. So in that statement, he's letting you know, very clean and clear, I hung on to it until the solution was given to me. And there's a really powerful thing there. He's not saying I solved it or I came up with a solution. He's saying I just stayed with it. So my intention and my will was focused on the thing I wanted to overcome until the light came and gave me the solution. So the mind itself presented to him the solution as long as he was able to stay with it long enough to find it way down deep in the big M mind structure there somewhere. And that kind of will and intention, that methodology has been repeated by hundreds of highly successful people throughout our history, whether they were industry leaders, industry giants, or saints, seers, or sages. They always said it was a matter of being able to continually focus on what I wanted to overcome until I overcame it without any kind of stumbling or allowing any obstacle to come in my way. And that's really what we're looking at for any of this. We want to be able to have the will to stay with something and overcome it. So there is some building of will. There is some building of intention. That's part of the foundation process. But I would say at the end of the day, it's how bad do you want it? Your intention is going to dictate how fast you get it. I love the merging of spirituality and this path with everyday life. When you're talking, it reminds me of people using that liminal state they would sit in a chair and they would hold marbles or hold something in their hand and get themselves into a really, really deep, almost fall asleep state in order to have these creative breakthroughs. They're using kind of what we're doing, where we're trying to drop our brainwaves down into that very subtle state, but they're doing it to be more creative or to solve a problem. Many men have used that, women too, have used that technique. It's been handed down for a long time. So one of the ways that we would utilize this vehicle in the right way would be to concentrate on our problem, as Thomas Edison did, and hold a marble in his hand, sit back and fall into the sleep state, but just teeter between the dreamless state and the hypnagogic state before it, making sure that ball didn't fall out of his hand and wake him up. So he'd repeatedly go back until he met that state, retrieved his solution, came back and was considered a genius for it. But really, he didn't do anything other than waiting for the mind to deliver it. Now, in the same way, there are a myriad of other things we can do in that state rather than waiting for solutions to be solved. We can get down in that state and merge wind energies or body energies in certain ways, like I just explained in the tumor, the heat way. We can bring the downward and upward flowing winds together to cause a spark in the digestive wind and suddenly mitigate our body temperature or cause some blissful sensations that enter into the central column and so forth. There's a number of practices just on those two winds, let alone the other several dozen winds that sit in the body. So there are different ways we can utilize this vehicle in all sorts of creative and impactful ways. The problem is we don't have an instruction guide. 
And so for most people, we continually get duped in looking outward to fulfill the need that's inward. So we want to go into the world and either, you know, promote ourselves on social media or try to get some more money or try to get more fame or knowledge or get more power. And we're trying to grab these things, hoping it'll satiate that drive, that desire within. It never does. And until we learn the process of going within to satiate it, that suffering process is going to continue. It will never stop. And we'll never get that one piece of pizza where it's just, that's it. That's all I ever needed. <laughs> and I don't need anything else. I'm done. It'll always be more and more and more. And that's what drives us to be disconnected and hateful and angry and mean and all kinds of things to each other because we just are frustrated by the fact that I can never satiate this thing. And so understanding that we can go within and get healing here is really important. It's very, very important. And also understanding the process by which to do that is very important, obviously, because you're not just going to guess these things. It's too big. There's too much possibility there to just say, I'm just going to sit around and figure it out for most people. So having a pattern, a path, having an approach, having a methodology, understanding what's going on is vital. Otherwise, we just don't have a long enough life to kind of guess it. The odds are not in our favor. Now, what if someone's just not interested in developing any city? Can they just go after realization and that clarity and liberation? Absolutely. I mean, one of the most important things, as I say so much, is that when somebody sits down and just starts to open the energy inside of them, just through simple meditative processes, you're already ensuring that at the time of death, the habitual energies moving into that direction are going to cause a better rebirth. Just from sitting in a basic way, you're already driving energies in a new way. You're already ensuring those energies move in a certain way. So when death comes to take you, you're already going to move into a different kind of rebirth, a different kind of cycle, rather than the normal cycle, which is down and out. So you're already setting yourself up for success. Now, just taking that a little bit further and understanding the little deeper aspects of it, you can move straight through to heightened states of radiant awareness and clarity and move away from the transient self to a place that you'll start to gain control over what's happening around you, what's happening within you, and also move into a state of spiritual stream or spirituality, as they call it just that sixth kind of sense, that thing that transcends the five senses and goes beyond without worrying about any of this other crazy stuff. You know, some practitioners, they want to get involved with a lot of ancillary practices, and that's absolutely okay. Some practitioners just say, just clean up the mess that's in my mind. <laughs> just make me feel better and let me see clearer. And that's great. That's a direct path. So, you know, different strokes for different folks, different medicines for different illnesses. So some people come and say, I just, I'm not happy. And okay, so let's look at that and start to overcome that. And other people say, I want to adventure. I want to seek and see everything. And I want to explore all parts of this experience. And that's a different kind of adventure. But at the same time, at the end of the day, we want to have the ability to control the way we perceive and the way we feel, sense, think, and speak. And those things need to come under our control rather than saying it is what it is. And I just have to accept life the way it is. And I think that is fleeting for a lot of, you know, new generation people to say, just accept things and just roll with it. And that's it. You got no part in this creation. You're just sort of here as a leftover, a byproduct and make the best of it. It's going to be terrible and good luck. I think that's a hard way to look at things when you're the experiencer in the vehicle that's experiencing. So once we gain a little bit of control, we start to see that these experiences don't have to be bad. I can make them great. I can make them funny. I can make them blissful. And then that control really gives us the ability to change the way life rolls out. And that's the biggest part of the spiritual path beyond all the ancillary woo-woo stuff, as they say. Yeah, this subject reminds me, 
maybe I'm biased, but about lucid dreaming, just because when you get lucid in a dream, I mean, clarity permeates the entire dream. So we become joyful and playful and the world around us becomes malleable and we can create any dream we want. So applying that to our current lives, it doesn't seem so radical in that regard. You know, they say every night we die, we go into a little death. It's a practice, right? So we go to bed at night, we practice death and wake back up the next day as another life started in the next day. And each day are just a bunch of little lives tied together. And how are you doing in all those lives? How are you doing in all those days? So when we go to bed at night, the minute we wake up, we realize the dream is ours to explore, experience, and have fun with. Suddenly, everything changes once we're awake. The whole dream changes. So when we're asleep, unconscious in the dream, when we're not having a conscious dream, everything can be terrible. Most of the time, it causes a lot of anxiety. It's very stressful. But the moment we wake up, all of that drops away. And the dream becomes ours. And we do all the things we want to do and explore and see and feel. And, and it becomes our canvas. The same way we want to wake up to the living reality we're in now. And not let the bias of the small self make us unconscious to our day-to-day -day living here. So that we can explore and play and have fun together in this reality as well. And so we become conscious in this reality and become conscious in the higher reality, where eventually we awaken to the whole structure of creation itself so that we can evolve beyond it into another more exalted experience. That's beautiful. Just that at the end of this path and the goal of it, if there could be that is freedom and joy and creating a blissful life for you and for others and takes the city and being weightless or hearing other people's thoughts and really focuses it, I think. It does. And I think the best thing, if we look at the Siddha, if we look at these kinds of powers, these mental powers or whatever we want to call them from that perspective, we see that the only reason I'd ever want to feel somebody else's condition is so that I can relate with them and help them. It's a completely different intention from that place. So, you know, the Siddha of being able to control my heat really becomes a way for me to teach people how to help themselves, heal themselves and how to be safe and how to be warm when it's cold. And it's really about other people. It's not really about using it for the sake of me. And all the cities turn out to be that same thing when we reach the right level of understanding. It's just another way for me to try to connect and help somebody else, you know, because I'm not worried about me. I'm feeling fine. I have nothing wrong. So we want to reach out and try to help somebody else feel better. Everything about this world is suffering. I mean, it's the bottom line. People around us, no matter how much they smile and how much they tell us things are great, God bless them, they're still feeling unloved, alone, confused, sad, scared. This is just every human being. It doesn't matter how big and strong you think you are. Everybody feels this down deep. We may have covered it up. We may cover it up well, but down deep, we feel the same kind of confusion and fear. And so when we connect with that and other people and really allow them to be honest about that and allow them to feel that they can be honest about it, then you've made a great connection and you're on the way to helping them feel better about themselves and becoming all that they can be, the best human being, the best experience they can possibly be. And there's nothing greater than that. So looking at the Siddha from below, it seems like a bunch of ways we can take advantage of others or ways that we can take advantage of our own situation. Looking at it from above, it's a way of helping people. That's beautiful. I could go on with questions, but I know we have some exciting news regarding the new website. Do you want to touch upon that before we go? We've had news about launches for the past couple months. We've finally gotten to a place where we're ready to, to actually launch the site, I think. So, you know, again, as I always say, the team of elves that are going crazy with the website have spent so much time making it as beautiful and as perfect as it can be so we can help people. And that's really the goal. 
we're launching to the main group November 1st. Doors are open. And just a few days after that, it'll be a public launch for anybody who's interested in coming and joining the group. We have hundreds of practitioners from all over the world, as I've said before, and that's going to grow very quickly. We have a huge amount of people at the front door waiting to come in. And I thank you for your patience. And we've been trying to go as fast as we can, but we want it to be right. And we have a number of tutors and teachers in the site that are going to be absolutely amazing to be around and be so helpful for people because they've been through a lot of this. So I think people are going to love being there. They're going to love being in it and love learning about all the little secrets and all the little things we teach about deep meditation that I just don't think is available very often in our world. So I think they get that benefit. Most of all, it's the support. All of the amazing content we put up is fantastic. I think that everyone's going to appreciate that and love being around our satsangs and our events and our meetings and all of the fun stuff we do as locals here because we have a growing local group. But I think that they're just going to really be happy about the content that we're giving out and just plainly speaking about things so that they can grasp them and apply them. So Jukama.com, D-R-U-K-A-M-A.com will be open right after the 1st of November. Very excited about that for everybody who's been involved and will be involved. Yeah. May I touch upon some of the stuff that excites me? <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a blessing just because we have an incredible team making some awesome stuff. And the content for anyone interested, it takes someone who's fresh on the path and walks them through week by week with video and audio and animated lectures but all the way into the more advanced mystical teachings. It's really incredible because where it goes is unbelievable. As I watch some of it, I know it's working because I literally have to throw a pen because it's so good. It's so juicy and it's (laughs) it's nothing like I've ever seen. So if you're not a beginner, it gets to the point with more advanced practices later on, which is really exciting. And the style and the tone of those is really radically different from what people are used to seeing when it comes to these subjects. And there's so much more to come. If you want to finally finish this path or develop the skills to do so and to know directly, not just intellectually, the nature of yourself and reality, please join us. It's a beautiful family of adepts and seekers alike. And I'm excited. I think we're going to need more pens because there's some really exciting things. (laughs) You are right about that. There's some really exciting things. I mean, even as I see the team coming up with concepts and ideas that are going to happen after the launch, and I think that people are going to really appreciate it. And I think it's going to just be a lot of fun which is really important. We need to make the spiritual path fun because it's difficult to make corrections, especially when it comes to our own intention. So, you know, for me wanting to correct me, for me wanting to become a better person, just that foundation alone is difficult. So it's good to surround yourself with really supportive people. And it's good to surround yourself with the right kind of teaching, right kind of teaching, the right kind of environment to support that. Otherwise, it's very difficult. And I think we've done that. I think the team has put that together in a great way. So I'm excited as well. And only about a week or so. So we'll see how it goes. I'm happy and fortunate to have you guys around me. Thank you for joining us today, Daishi. It's always an incredible pleasure. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate all you guys who do this with me every week or two. We really couldn't get it out to people if you guys weren't here with us. So I appreciate all this co-hosting you guys do from the bottom of my heart. I appreciate it. That's all. I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of you guys who are listening inside the group coming soon, hopefully. Yeah, the countdown begins. (laughs) (laughs) If you guys have any questions or comments, please email us at radio at drukama.com. That's D-R-U-K-A-M-A.com. Thank you so much for joining us and until next time. Mm